Okay, back again for another episode of Not in the Mood. I am your host, Daryl Moody. We're going to dive right into the very complex issue of police brutality this week, and that's because it's still in the news. We've had these Black Lives Matter protests and, in many cases, riots now for months, and yet we still uh, seems like week by week we have these stories of folks getting shot by police officers in the news. Uh, just this week we also had a major development that was the settlement of the Brianna Taylor uh, case in the city of Louisville, where that city uh, settled with the family of Brianna Taylor uh, to the tune of $12 million. So I want to talk to you about police and police brutality and kind of their perception. And uh, later on, we're going to bring on uh, an activist, a former uh, law enforcement uh, officer turned activist Charles D. Hayes. He's also the author of a book that's out right now. And he's going to talk uh, to us about the uh, bias within law enforcement that he perceives and the inherent racism that, uh, in his opinion, uh, is basically all throughout law enforcement. So I'm going to give you my take first, and that's kind of where I want to start is how I feel about law enforcement. So obviously, as a reporter in the news, uh, I deal with law enforcement quite a bit, be it at crime scenes or talking to public information officers or interviewing uh, sheriffs or chiefs of police, that sort of thing. So I talk to cops all the time. But uh, in addition to my professional experience with law enforcement, I've also dealt with uh, a lot of uh, police officers and sheriff's deputies and state troopers in my personal life, um, having grown up here in Florida. I mean, you know, I've talked to police officers uh, when I was caught doing something that I shouldn't have. I've had to turn over my driver's license and, and let them run it real quick and make sure that there are no warrants out for my arrest or anything like that. The good news, I've never been cuffed and stuffed. I've never been in the back of a police car. I've never been uh, booked into jail, never been criminally charged with anything. But I have been caught by police officers doing things I shouldn't do. And guess what? I cooperated and I wasn't shot. Very important to, to understand. Uh, at least in my personal experience, when you cooperate with law enforcement officials, they typically don't shoot you. So I've also dealt with law enforcement uh, in terms of being a victim of violent crime. I've been robbed before. It was election night 2000. I was standing outside of a bar talking to a buddy of mine, and uh, this guy walks up to me and asks me if I can give him a jump. And uh, I was supposed to meet another friend at the bar to watch the election night returns come in. And so uh, I, I, it's so funny. I can remember getting into the car with this guy, and I, I can remember thinking to myself consciously, you know, Daryl, this is exactly how people get robbed. And sure enough, about 60 seconds later, I ended up with a 38 behind my ear. And uh, it cost me about $37. But I, I got a cool story to tell about election night 2000. So, um, and I'll tell you, when, when I, you know, called 911 and the, the sheriff's deputy that responded, he had an ego on him. He at one point referred to himself and said, I am 911. And, uh, you know, about an hour later, I can remember him dusting my car and, and stuff. And I'm like, listen, man. You know, I feel like this isn't really going anywhere. Can I can I get back to my evening? Um, and sure enough, they they never they never found the guy. I ended up uh, connecting with a, a, de a detective at the police department. We did a composite sketch. Unfortunately for me, in my case, I knew that detective was a regular at the bar where I bartended. This was in college, so I knew darn well that guy wasn't going to find the guy that that uh, held me up. And sure enough, he didn't. So, but you know, the point I'm trying to make here is that you know you're. You, you have good cops and bad cops. I've dealt with some bad cops. There was a time one time 
where I had a neighbor who was uh, watching movies really loud uh, at all hours of the day and night, and I got so sick and tired of it that I called the police department. The officer came and basically tried to instigate a fight between the two of us so he could arrest somebody. He even went as far at one point to tell me uh, that if he was in this situation, he'd put a bullet in the guy's head. And I'm like, well, if you could just give me your name and badge number, I'd really appreciate that because I'm going to make sure that your superior officer knows about that. I've been stranded on I-4. I've had a state trooper uh, come up and find me broken down on I-4 with a, with a flat tire. And he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hang out with you until the tow truck driver gets here. But he wouldn't let me use his jack to change my tire. He said it was an insurance thing. I don't know. Um, as far as professionally, like I said, you know, I've been on dozens of crime scenes. And, and I'll be honest with you, most police officers or sheriff's deputies or state troopers that are working a crime scene, the last person they want to deal with is a nosy reporter who pulls up in a marked truck and says, hey, guys, what's going on? So, you know, while I have not been treated great by officers at crime scenes, I don't hold that against them. That's they're doing their job. They don't want me in the way. I get that. Uh, I've also, you know, as I said, I've interviewed lots of uh, deputies or sheriffs and, and, and chiefs of police about different community outreach efforts and that sort of thing, talking about uh, uh, different efforts to eliminate crime in certain areas. And, I, and I've had some really positive experiences uh, in that respect. So for me, based on the, I don't know, several dozen or so uh, interactions with law enforcement, I, taking the good with the bad, just assume that most officers are good people and are doing it for the right reasons. They're not there to trip on their own ego. They're not there to be racist and, and, and hold different people down. But there are folks who believe that. So uh, the gentleman that I am bringing on for us to talk to this week is Charles D. Hayes. Like I said, he's a retired police officer, uh, now calls himself an activist, and he's, he's the author of a new book called Blue Bias. So I started off by asking Mr. Hayes a little bit about himself, just kind of wanted some background uh, to get a better understanding of why he believes that there is a bias within law enforcement. Uh, I was a police officer in Dallas, Texas in the 1960s. I spent four years in the Marines and then a little over four years on the police department in Dallas. I experienced what what police departments call officer burnout. I became thoroughly disgusted with uh, handling domestic disturbance because because the behavior seemed so uh, infantile, and I didn't have the the education and perspective at the time to keep perspective and keep from becoming disgusted and cynical and jaded and all that stuff. Uh, long story short, when I, after I left the department, about a decade later, I became intensely interested in the subject of uh, uh, policing and human behavior, and I've been studying primatology, anthropology, uh, neuroscience, and a whole slew of subjects. And I've been writing books and essays about the subject, about the value of self-education for more than 30 years, and then. About 10 years ago, or well, 2009, when Henry Lewis Gates Jr. had the dust up with the police sergeant to choose him a breaking in his own home, I began to write about police uh, uh, policing again, and I began to do the research for Blue Bias. It uh, I spent over four years of intensive research, and the book has over 640 endnotes. So uh, I'm pretty thoroughly acquainted with policing as it is today. Well, tell me about Blue Bias. Well, Blue Bias is, a, is an attempt to arm police officers with uh, knowledge about how their mind works, how their limbic system works, how they, how 
they they uh, uh, react to stress over a long period of time. It it uh, hopefully gives them the perspective to to uh, keep from happening what happened to me when I became I, I didn't have you need a thirty thousand foot or a big picture uh, perspective about humanity in order to deal with human behavior at its worst on a daily basis. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, you know, not all officers are, are, are nuanced on that. And and we see people make mistakes. And nowadays we're seeing uh, just a snowball effect in terms of the civil unrest and the way people react in communities to this sort of thing. You know, people in these, these communities, they see uh, these, these officer-involved shootings and those sort of things as an attack on their community. Now you've got people reacting in the way that we saw in Los Angeles where people are, are, are approaching officers and targeting them and executing them there. Uh, you know, how, what, what do we make of the world today? Well, to me, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is, is a sincere and anguished plea to pay attention to a double standard in policing that has been going on since the beginning of policing. I mean, you take two and a half centuries of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, two generations of legal redlining, and then three generations of illegal redlining, and all, all of that activity has shaped the inner cities all over this country. And from the very beginning, uh, African Americans have been treated differently in policing, I mean that's that now all of a sudden that's that's become very evident. I mean the the George Floyd incident was a very vivid example of that. Um uh, and and to make matters worse, so many local governments depend upon fines from misdemeanors and traffic tickets and that sort of thing to to fund government. And in these poor communities and these poor places that that just exacerbates the whole situation because now you're now you're finding people who can't afford to pay the fines and it's a good way to turn misdemeanors into felonies over time. I mean, some of these neighborhoods were uh, are are overpoliced dramatically, and it's 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 like being in a combat zone or in a war zone. I mean, it's 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 just. The, uh, in, the, in the book, I call them cortisol canyons because the stress level is so high from not only if, if you, I mean, the problem with poor communities is good people live there and they, they deserve to be safe in their, in their homes and, and when they walk down the street. And if, if not only they have to worry about bad actors, but also aggressive policing, it just, it just makes it a, a miserable place to live, and there's and there's no real sense of community because it's just shattered. So, so what what do law enforcement agencies do to bridge that gap with the community? How do they reach out? How do they forge relationships? How do they foster relationships? Well, How do they that, they develop trust? Well, that's that's really a political problem. I mean, it's the, the police departments do sort of what they're pressured to do. So it, you have to, it has to be politics. You have to find another way to fund, fund government, uh, is my estimation. Uh, I mean, these communities have just, they're just, uh, <laughs> almost war torn. I mean, I see these, uh, I see white squads, I mean, white squad cars traveling, you know, one after another going through these neighborhoods and stuff. And to me, it reminds me of sharks. I mean, 
and I, and I, I participated in this stuff. I mean, I did this. Uh, not and I mean, I was I was a racist cop and didn't understand racism. Didn't didn't realize that I had grown up to to. Uh, I mean, I never in those days in the '60s I never heard the term white supremacy, but we were taught uh, that white superior, superior superiority was common sense. I mean, by all of the adults. I mean, that was that was not open for discussion. So, so if there's systemic racism within most law enforcement agencies across the country, you know, what do you do? Well, it's, systemic racism is not just in the in police department. It's, it's in our it's, it's in the bedrock of culture. I mean, we we grow up to uh, we grow up internalizing the way things appear, not necessarily the way things we hope to be. I mean, I, I grew up in Texas and Oklahoma in the 1940s and 50s, and children in those years had good reason to believe that people who lived in nice houses were mostly white, and women. I mean, uh, nurses and school teachers were all women, and people who were doctors and lawyers and politicians were all white men. And if you think you can grow up in that kind of uh, situation without being affected by it, at least in a matter of degree, it's just nonsensical. I mean, uh, in those years, the, uh, African Americans were mostly domestic servants or railroad porters or, uh, you know, did many labor, labor, and it took it took explicit racist years of affirmative action just to acknowledge the fact that black people can do anything as well as white people. Well, Charles, I'm not a racist, but I am a father, and I and I try to raise my kids to not have that implicit bias. And 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 the way I pitch it to them is this way: I tell them, you know, every person has the opportunity to earn or lose your respect, and you cannot have any preconceived notion about them based on the color of their skin, what they look like, where they come from, or that uh, anything like that. I basically tell my kids, you got to approach everybody with a clean slate and give them the opportunity to earn your respect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's to me, uh, uh, if you're, if you are engaged in, in work as a police officer and you, you see yourself in a situation where, uh, a subject of racism is coming up. I mean, if it's a if you're stopping a black person or something, you have to have almost a warning flashlight, flashing light in your mind to say, okay, here here's here is a uh, I'm going to exercise conscious control here, and I'm not going to be uh, influenced by some assumptions I've made that I didn't know I <laughs> didn't know I had. I mean, here's a, here's an example in Oakland, California. Uh, Jennifer Eberhardt uh, is a psychologist. She has uh, done some computer programs, and she had has taken recorded thousands of stops by police officers. A computer can read that text and determine if the person being stopped was black. And the re the way they do that is there is a different tone of respect, less respect. And that includes white officers and black officers. When they have a black person stopped, they are not as respectful. And that is implicit bias. And 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 no no none of those officers who who do that think that they are biased in the in, in any way. But uh, the record shows clearly that they don't see that person with the same amount of respect as they do white people. 
And, and with respect to that bias, um, you are talking about a systemic bias in law enforcement and a propensity to police for police brutality. And, and, and there's a financial incentive in all this. Explain that to me. Well, the, the financial incentive is, is when, and especially in, in poor communities, when local governments begin to rely on the revenue source of, for misdemeanor fines and traffic tickets and summons and that sort of thing. They get hooked on that. And, and then they're, they're policing, they judge their success by the numbers, uh, the number of crimes, the number of tickets, the number of this and that and stuff. Instead, the, the, the really thing to do to to judge their success would be to ask the citizens in that community if they really feel safe. If they don't, you're not really doing the job that you're supposed to do because everybody in this country, regardless of where you live, should be able to, to be safe in your home and when you walk down the street. And and that safety includes being being safe from over-aggressive policing. I mean, there, there are communities in this country where a young black man can't walk down the the road without being harassed by police on uh, maybe five times out of a month. I mean, and, and it doesn't occur in, in affluent neighborhoods. If it did, there would be a lot of pushback. The trouble is in these poor communities, they don't have the muscle to to complain and get anything done about it. Since it since it is about dollars and cents, since it's about revenue for these for these governments and these agencies and so forth, is it possible to penalize them hard enough? And I'm asking this question because of the Breonna Taylor settlement yeah. in Louisville, twelve million dollars. Can you de-incentivize police brutality in terms of of the financial impact to agencies? Is that possible? And if so, can we use that as a mechanism for change? Well, I. I... I think a twelve million dollar loss. I mean, settlement will get some management attention. I mean, I I I think that uh, it may be effective over that. When when I read I read several reports of the Browner Taylor case, three things jumped out at me, at me right away. Number one was that fifth warrant looked like it was it was uh, bogus. It, it they relied on uh, they said that they relied on the information from the post office and then the postmaster denied that that was true so that means that that the 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 warrant was essentially bogus it was no good the second thing was there was an officer there that fired 10 times through a door that he couldn't see on the other side what kind of training would have would cause a person to do that and the third thing was that brianna taylor didn't receive immediate medical attention See, that's that's why they saw her. I mean, that was an implicit bias in my view. I mean, that that they didn't see her as one of them. So, I, I it it's it, it was a piece of cake getting a, long, a wrongful death suit. I mean, winning a long wrongful death. But but convicting those officers, that's a whole other thing because of the law. I mean, they 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 even though they were at a bogus warrant, they shot at somebody who was shooting at them. And and the law, the way the law looks at that, it might be hard to get a conviction. And I don't know if, if it's if it's warranted or not. But the the wrongful death suit for sure. I mean, they they should have won and they did. So, what if what if there were an effort legislatively to perhaps lower the threshold of what constitutes an excessive force case 
against a law enforcement agency. Could you could 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 you go that route? Would that be a possible way to enact change? Well, maybe, maybe so, uh, but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, body cams. Uh, they didn't have those in in my day. Today, I wouldn't be comfortable in being a police officer if I didn't have one, because I think if you if you're really sincerely trying to do a job, do the good job, and you really want to protect people and 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 what have you, I don't think there's a, there there will be anything show up on that camera that you couldn't reasonably explain and get people to believe. Uh, the, these guys, these guys that wear that wear them and turn them off or something like that, I should be fired in my view. Uh, but I don't I don't know how successful uh, uh, laws would be to lower the threshold or not. I don't know if that would how that would work. I think we have plenty of, of uh, uh, laws now. If they if we just if manage management has to be obsessed with with uh, the use of force or it will get out of hand, and that happens just that happens because of biology. An officer who engages in conflict on a routine basis has has structural behavioral changes physical changes in the brain their amygdala will grow larger they can become hypersensitive to insults or having their authority challenged they uh, law enforcement psychologists refer to it as a as a sense that they develop a sense of entitlement you could that you could uh, see that sense of entitlement in the officer that had his uh, knee on George Floyd's neck. He was just cool. He was cool with what he was doing. He didn't have any problems with it. I mean, he he was, uh, uh, you know, he he should have been uh, uh, probably uh, relieved of duty and with the public sometime before and had him do something else. I mean, in law enforcement. I mean. Because he was obviously, um, I've I read a whole bunch of things about the complaints against him, but uh, none of them, none of them had merit. Or, but uh, to to the management, and and obviously they should have. But um, like I say, office. I mean, uh, behavioral specialists. I mean, psychologists should review those body cams, routine body cams from officers, and they should re- review their own with supervision to see if they're getting out of out of hand because it happens naturally i mean your act, your 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 body works against you if you're uh, engaged in that in conflict enough i mean it's it's related to post traumatic stress disorder same thing uh and you don't have to be in combat to get it okay so that was fun not a real easy subject to tackle in 23 minutes or less but uh, that was uh, Mr. Hayes' attempt. So I want to know what you guys think of the show. I want to know what you think about this particular uh, episode and the subject matter and the interview that I just did. Shoot me an email, daryl.moody at cmg.com. Uh, also, you know, we're about two dozen or so episodes into this little podcast adventure. And uh, I want to ask your help. If you like the show, if you like what we're doing uh, week in, week out, please uh, subscribe to the podcast and uh, share it with your friends. Share it with folks who you think might want to listen to this stuff too. You know, there are a lot of guys out there uh, yelling in podcasts and giving you their opinion, but I want to try and give you just a a slightly different angle uh, through my perspective, but then I also want to try and bring some interesting and knowledgeable guests on so that we can talk about it too. So uh, again, if you like the show, subscribe to it, share it with your friends, and we will talk to you next week.